Sisters, brothers, I invite you to stand if you're able. And we'll see in our bulletin this morning, we are called to worship in Psalm 27. Our words inspired by Psalm 27. So hear this call to worship. Come and worship. Come and pray. Know that God hears our voice and is present with us. In Jesus, we have the greatest of confidence. We are not forgotten. We are not condemned. We are not destined for futility. But we are recipients of His grace. He has sought us out. To make his face to shine on us, to bring life to our death, to show us his goodness. Death has been swallowed up in victory, and we will see this victory, let us worship and wait, and find his grace sufficient for us today, tomorrow, and always. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now as people who are not in this place to dress up and make as much noise as we can to get you to hear us, but we come as people who have been bad and called by you. You have 
preached out to us. In Christ, you have sought us out. And so in response, swept up into your love in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we gather together online. We gather together in this location to live one voice of, of prayer and praise and to receive grace that we so desperately need right now. So in these moments, as we set apart this time, move upon our hearts, use the words, use the sacrament, use the music, the pieces of the service to show us you. Make our praise beautiful to your ears and encouraging to our hearts. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together, the Lord is my salvation.
come to this time of confession of sin and assurance of God's love for us from Scripture. And as I often say, we don't come to this time to wallow in our guilt. Um, it's a very true thing to me. I've never done anything in my life that is good that is motivated by shame. Not a simple thing. Um, and God knows this. God knows that shame and guilt can propel us forward, and <laughs> maybe for a moment, um, but as human beings created in His image and likeness, what really moves us forward, what really matures us and grows us, is us responding to His love. And that's what the gospel is. It's God reaching into the darkness of our world, reaching into our guilt and shame to remove our guilt so that now we can have this new motivation, reconcile to him this new motivation, not to wallow in sin, but to be forgiven and to walk in the freedom of his delight in us. And so as we come into this time to confess, we don't come to wallow but we come to name those things which hinder us, to name those things that we've done and thought and said that are wrong and those good things that we've left undone, that God may work in our hearts to transform us. So I'm going to lead us into a time of prayer now. In the middle of that will be an opportunity for you to confess your sin to the Lord, and then together we are going to hear this profound good news from Ephesians chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Again, beckoned by you. Confession of sin is not our idea as if we can name uh, all of our sins well enough for you to reconsider your opinion of us. But we confess our sins because you have already revealed yourself as a great physician who can heal our souls. You have already shown us your grace. And so we come now in these moments not, not thinking we're heard of our sincerity or our ability. But we come in response to your gracious call. And Lord, as we look inwardly, we see so many ways that we walk in selfishness and disregard of you. Selfishness and disregard of others made in your image and disregard of ourselves who are made in your image and likeness. And so, Lord, we confess now all the ways that we have thought, said, and done the wrong things and all the good things that we've left undone. Your confession now. Take a moment now and confess your sins.
to lift up our anxieties and our needs. And I'll lead us into a time of prayer, but I'm not the only one that's heard. I invite you to pray during this time. Um, know that the Lord doesn't get his wires crossed, and it's not like there's going to be too many of us praying at one time. Very much here. But I'm going to lead us into this time of prayer. Um, but one of the comforts of Scripture for me is that even when we can't name the things that he hears and knows are wrongs, his answers are better than our prayers in a sense. Um, and even when our prayers are so imperfect or so mumbled, they are covered by the grace of Jesus. And so as we pray, keep that in mind. Um, as I said, all we listen to a time of prayer. Father, we come before you now as those who have been recipients of your love. And so with that, Lord, as we still live in this world that is so marked in so many ways by darkness, as we live in a world where your kingdom has come in Jesus and is continuing to grow through the work of the Holy Spirit, yet we still await the day when we will see the fulfillment of all your uh, redemptive work and where this in-between time our hearts in so many ways to threatened and tempted to be torn apart and divided. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in us a simplicity of heart, a simplicity of heart that desires and longs for you and all things in you, that you, Lord, would be our Lord, lifted up, King Jesus, over all things for us, and that you would teach us by faith what it means for us to live in your kingdom, to receive all good gifts from you as the Father whose purposes and, and, and affection for us has never changed. In you there's no shadow of change. There's no darkness. Teach us, Lord, to walk as children who are delighted. Lord, we come before you now believing that the message of Jesus Christ is good news. Good news for the lost. Good news for those who are very far from you. And that describes so many people in our neighborhoods and our families and our communities and our homes. God, people that are far from you because of the choices they've made in life, people that are far from you because they've been driven from you by people who bear your name, people who have been hurt and who have hurt others. Lord, we pray that through us individually and through us together as a community surrounding your promises that your gospel would go out and we would be witnesses of you, that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. The kingdom of God's doors flung wide open and all may come in to lay down their arms against you and find a home. So we pray, God, that you would use us. Make us quick in prayer for those that we know that so desperately need your grace, those that are far from you. Keep that at the forefront of our mind, Lord, as we interact with those around us, even as we interact with people we don't like or people that don't like us. Let us see ourselves as instruments of your peace, bringers of your good news, Lord, we also believe and trust that the gospel is not just something that we believe to get in the door, but it becomes the fuel. The love of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ is not something we ever move on from, but it becomes the place we camp out, it becomes our home. And so we believe the gospel is good news for the found, for those who have come to be by faith. Whether that's us who have come recently for the first time, or those who have believed in you for a long time, we never move on. And the love of Jesus being the rock, the foundation, the fuel that our gas tanks so Lord, make you the center of us. 
May we be motivated and driven by your love for us. May that be the thing that propels us forward into all the various places that you put us in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools. Move upon our hearts, God, to transform us more and more away from selfishness, away from the images that are projected onto us from this world, away from the selfishness and sinfulness of our own hearts, and transform us to be more and more like you. Renew us in all of who we are to look like you, to act like you. Lord, we pray and believe that the gospel is good news for our community, because it means that we, motivated by your gospel, become a blessing, become people who are motivated for the peace and prosperity of the places that you've called us. And so, God, we pray that we would use our actions to be a blessing to our neighbors, to be a blessing to the cities and the towns that we live in, and in our church together, a blessing to this community, to God. We pray that you would open up doors of opportunities for us to serve and to serve well and to love and love well. We pray, Lord, as we look forward to this Christmas tree lighting ceremony, this unexpected opportunity for us to love people in a simple but profound way. We pray that, I pray that many people sign up and come out and, and, and that you would use conversation and use even the, the smallness and, and <laughs> weirdness of hot chocolate, God, to, um, to draw people to you. Uh, and Lord, we also pray and know that the gospel is good news for this world. The whole world. Because your promise is that you are making all things new. And that the grace that you have given in Christ will flow as far as the curse of sin is found. And we long to see that happen. Cause us to abound and hope for it. Cause us to put our time, money, and resources toward that. Let us be faithful in praying for those who are crossing cultural boundaries of the gospel. Missionaries that are going worldwide. But also, Lord, those who represent you uh, here stateside. In all the many different ways that you have called people. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we also pray for those in our midst who are sick. We pray for healing of bodies and minds, restored to good health. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are traveling for safety there in this time, this season of holidays, that there will be times of great joy, and even as there is always in these times mixed in grief, that you cause us to grieve well and assure us of your presence with us in this time and always. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come now to John chapter 11. This is actually going to be our last sermon in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, at least for right now. Uh, so what we're doing is we'll finish up here in John 11 today, and starting next week, we're going to move on to um, uh, four sermon series a few sermons for the Advent season, celebrating the time of Christmas. After the turn of the new year, we're going to move on to uh, the book of Exodus, which I'm excited about. So we'll be in Exodus after the turn of the year. So that means our time in John just stretched this entire year. It's coming to an end this morning. Uh, now, as you can tell, there's more in the Gospel of John, and my plan is to come back to, to that at another time. So, with that said, Turn with me to John chapter 11. It's printed for you in your bulletin, or if you have an app, or you can pull it up on your phone, or if you have your physical Bible. Um, we'll be looking at all 40, uh, 1 through uh, 44. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. 
Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, who brother Lazarus named now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hand. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the false light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary said, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah. Some God has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept his hand and died? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in these 44 verses we have this account of one of the most remarkable uh, exhibitions of power you did in this on this earth, but not just a, a historical recording of something that happened. Lord, we have them as a picture of your life, a picture of what it is for you to come to us, to enter into our world, and what motivates you and what you do in our group, what you do when you're here with us. So I pray, Lord, in these moments, show us Jesus, that we may love him all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think probably... Uh, I had a Facebook memory pop up the other day from like 11 years ago. And I don't think, any, this is the danger of a social network existing that long. I don't think there's anything that is so consistently embarrassing to me as my thoughts that I thought were worthy of the internet 10 years ago. So, <laughs> there'll be status updates from 11, 12 years ago that pop up and I'll think, oh man. And I'm sure I'm going to feel that way years about me now as well, but um, I had one pop up the other day, and it made me laugh, because it was a post complaining about people decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving. That's what I was, I was apparently eat up about, it because I ended the post with Bob Humble. I quite literally quoted Scrooge before he was reformed, like, it, this is, you know, that's the bad guy, that's not a great guy, like, literally Bob Humble. I was the Grinch. And so the reason why it made me laugh is because in the last decade, I had gone from that guy, from the guy that would groan until post-Thanksgiving, then I didn't listen to any lights, I didn't hear any music. I've gone from that guy to the guy that on November 1st wants lights. On November 1st, I want garland. <laughs> on November 1st, I want to watch White Christmas. I want to hear some Christmas music. In a day, I've gone from despising, kind of, until I got to December, to wanting it sooner and sooner. Now, I think that's for a number of reasons. And, and if you still don't like hearing Christmas music before Thanksgiving, that's not wrong. Let me say that on the front end. But I think there's a number of reasons why the last decade has brought me from this guy to this one. And I, I think it's because in my last 10 years of life, I've become more acquainted with suffering and grief. <clears throat> Just the experiences of life. Uh, life has beat the bottom bug out of me. <laughs> and there's a sense that I, I need Christmas more now. Uh, not that the lights are the, the essence of what Christmas is or, or the trees. But I need these reminders. I need the lights. I need the tree. I need Christmas. I need the light of how we celebrate this season where I feel like I need it earlier. I need it to break into my world a little bit earlier, I think, than I felt like I used to. Or let me be more specific, because I'm not talking about the lights. I need Jesus. I need to know God's intentions for me. I need the reminder that in Jesus, God has come into this world and it meant something. That he's brought something else than what the world tends to give to me. 
I mean his love. Now in this passage, we don't have Christmas. This isn't a Christmas passage. But what we have is a situation that desperately needs some hope. That desperately needs the light of Jesus to shine into it. We have a family that needs Christmas to come, <laughs> even though this isn't a Christmas passage. So let's talk about it a little bit more, and we'll walk through the passage together. The end of chapter 10, which we were in last week, the end of chapter 10 finds us almost back to where the Gospel of John started. It makes this explicit point. You can see the last few verses of chapter 10. It points out that Jesus is back where he started. He's back where John the Baptist had been doing his ministry. Except for now, it's kind of come full circle. At the beginning, Jesus was just a guy that John the Baptist pointed to, and suddenly Jesus now had a handful of followers. But now Jesus is back at the place where John the Baptist started. He's got a following around him. And if you're looking at it from a story perspective, it's almost like a complete story. Chapter 10 ends, and Jesus has it's gone from here to here. And the opposition of the religious leaders, which we see throughout the Gospel of John, has largely failed. They tried to arrest him, he evades it. They tried to catch him in a trap, he evades it. The end of chapter 10, they try to stone him, but he escapes. And the last verse of chapter 10 says it this way, as I, as I mentioned, then Jesus went back across the Jordan, which is a river, to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people were coming to him. They said, though John never performed the sign, all that John said about his name is true, and in that place many believe in Jesus. Almost feels like John's like wrapping a bow on the story of Jesus in a sense. And if you didn't know, uh, you know, cross, resurrection, ascension, if you didn't know those things, you could read this and say, that was a great story about a guy coming in, healing some people, and gathering a problem. Feels like a complete story. Jesus is 40 miles from Jerusalem. That's where this place is. He's about 40 miles away. He's relatively safe. He's outside of the, the reaches of the religious leaders who have been opposing him. And he's surrounded now by people that admire him. So my question is, John tying the bow on this, Jesus, with his, he's built his ministry, he's got his followers, what would draw him out of this place of safety? What would draw him out of this place where, uh, where he's fine, he's outside the reach of the religious leaders, he's 40 miles away from danger? What would draw him out? The need of a friend. Jesus gets word in this passage that a man that he dearly loves is very sick. A man named Lazarus. Um, a family, and Lazarus is part of a family that's obviously close to Jesus. And he gets word that he's sick, but the dangerous thing here is that Lazarus and his family live in a suburb of Jerusalem, less than two miles from the city. Now, last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, they ran him out of town trying to stone him. And he's in safety, but he gets word that these friends need him. And the danger is clear, as I said, he's, two, he's less than two miles from Jerusalem, it's not a place of safety. To, for Jesus to go back would mean like him getting out of a burning building and going back in. And Jesus doesn't leave, by the way. You may have noticed it as we read through. It almost seems like there's something giving him pause from moving and leaving right away. And I think it's one of two things. On the one hand, Jesus always has this clear sense of purpose in his actions. It's almost like he has a clock or a calendar inside of his head, and he moves not at other people's whims, 
necessarily, but he moves, he talks about moving by the will of the Father, doing his Father's will. And he talks a lot in the Gospel of John about his quote-unquote hour. He has a clear sense of purpose and time that motivates him. He goes by the timetable of mission that God has given him. On the other hand, here, there always seems to be a sense of hesitation. Not Jesus cowering in fear, that's not what I'm saying, but a recognition of what's coming next. Because in the place of the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus here in John 11 is the last big action that Jesus takes before opposition reaches its peak and he's arrested and put to death. Now, I don't think those have to be in opposition, this idea that he's following the Father's will and that there might be some hesitation of what's coming next. Jesus operating in obedience to God and him not wanting to walk into this incredibly difficult circumstance, uh, I don't think those are necessarily in opposition. We read through the gospel, Jesus is not some superhuman and vulnerable to pain. He's not superman. And if we keep reading, not just in the gospel of John, in the other gospels as well, when Jesus looks square in the face what he's going to face in his crucifixion, he doesn't say, this is great, I'm just going to go through it, it's just going to last a minute, I don't have to worry about it. No, Jesus begged God to take it away, for it not to happen. And in fact, later on in the book of Hebrews, it talks about when Jesus saw his cross, he scorned its shame. When Jesus saw his cross, he hated what he saw, yet he endured it. Why? Because of, as it says, the joy set before him. He didn't endure it because he was resigned and he was out of options, but he endured it because he knew that his cross, almost paradoxically to us, would become the place where we would be free from the power and the penalty of sin, and we would be free from the power of death and reconciled to God. So Jesus here almost seems to hesitate, because I think he discerned here what it would cost him to return to Jerusalem. But he went anyway. He went anyway. Why? Because of his love for Lazarus. In this passage, we almost have encapsulated a picture of the entire mission of Jesus. Why did the eternal Son of God, in need of none, dwelling in the delight of the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity, why did he leave the place of honor and glory in heaven to come here to this world of frailty and frustration, this world of sin and violence? Why did he do it? Not because he was bored, not because he had nothing better to do, but because of his profound and deep love for us. He was determined that his love for us would not remain abstract, that it would come into our world and become a historical reality, that it would break into the reality of our existence to be applied to us. What drove him to go into this dangerous situation in Jerusalem? The love of Lazarus to leave the place of his safety. What led the Son of God to come into this world that he would see us freed? It's the essence of the gospel. 
So Jesus and his disciples, they're approaching Bethany, this village outside of Jerusalem. And they find the scene of the morning. Many people had gathered to comfort the family. In fact, I think it points to the idea that this family was pretty prominent. They lived in a suburb, but in the time of their, their sorrow, people were leaving the big city to come and comfort them. So this may have been a, a pretty prominent family, well-known. And in the next few verses, we meet Lazarus' sisters, two very famous women from the Gospels, Mary and Martha. And these two women are very different. Now, we meet them a handful of times in the Gospels. And the first one to approach Jesus, the first one we meet in this passage, is Martha. Now, we've met her in a few other places in the Gospels. She's the head of this family. In fact, in Luke 11, it talks about uh, Mary and, and Lazarus live with her in her house. So she's the head of this family. She owns the house they live in. She's a person that is clearly someone who has an eye for in Luke 11, Jesus comes to visit them at their house. And Martha becomes the one like, okay, we've got to do these arrangements. We've got these new people. We've got to set up this amount of stuff for the food. And in fact, she gets annoyed at her sister Mary, who's not helping her. And she says, Jesus, tell her to help me. And Mary is seated, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. And in essence, what Jesus says to Martha is, you don't need to clean your house up for me. You don't need to worry about the details. I'm here to be with you. You don't have to clean up for me. Mary's chosen a better thing here. Um, so that's, the, that's where we need to get the letter. But here we see Martha showing that same kind of uh, gumption, that same kind of go-getterness. <laughs> because notice Jesus is approaching the village and she doesn't wait for him to get to the house. She goes out to him before he even gets there. And it's not surprising to see her approach. In verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my, mother, my brother would not have died. I love, honestly, the reference. The, there's almost a level of intimacy she feels where it's, it's not long for her to approach Jesus with this. Not at all. And she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is frustration and anger mixed with confidence. Frustration and anger mixed with confidence and hope. They are together. That might sound like a contradiction, but that's grief, right? That's grief. Faith in the midst of grief can look like that, and it's not a bad thing. So much of faith in this world of trouble is, is, is mixed in with anger. We look around and we're angry at the things we see. In faith in Jesus, we're, we're invited to direct that anger to the right way to not be stuck in anger, but to have it propel us to God in his life. We'll get to that more in a second. We aren't supposed to be reconciled to pain and suffering and death. They're not things to be grateful for. I mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks ago. Suffering and death are things to rage against. They're not friends to be welcomed and be reconciled to. They are enemies to be overcome. We know that because when Jesus arrived in this world, he didn't show up to Martha in the death of Lazarus, and he didn't say, yeah, it's just a part of life, Martha. He didn't say, Lazarus should live on in your hearts and in your He didn't say, don't mourn her death, just celebrate. What did Jesus do? He raged against Lazarus' death. What did Jesus do in his crucifixion? That was him undergoing something he didn't have to so that the power of death and suffering would be good. And he tells her in verse 23, 
Your brother will rise. Your brother will rise. Now Martha answers him here as someone who knows her beliefs well. She says, I know you will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This idea that the end of human history will come to a time when all who, those who are, have died will rise again, that was a firmly embedded belief in the Old Testament. And by the time of Jesus, a firmly embedded belief in all of Judaism. So Martha knew that. She's saying, yes, death is not the end. God is set to bring an end to death. But honestly, in the moment of grief, in the heaviest parts of grief, that, even that good news can feel cold. Because it feels like a very distant, abstract future. Like, okay, yeah, rise again in the future, but I'm talking about right now. Then Jesus says something remarkable in verse 25. He says, he doesn't say, Martha, you're right, there is a resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I think the point that Jesus is making here, and narrowly on him, that he is the resurrection and the life, is this, that our hope is not that God gives us some good gifts. Now, God does give us good gifts. But the greatest gift that God gives is himself. Our hope is not that Jesus will be re a really good dispenser of gifts. Our hope is not that Jesus is Santa Claus that pops in and hands out some presents and then leaves. The hope of a Christian, the ultimate inheritance, the reward, the delight of the Christian is God himself. The God who is life. And Jesus joins himself to us. And what Jesus means is this. He's talked a lot about being united to him by faith in John. He says the work of God is to believe in him who, is, who he has sent. He talks a lot about that in John. He talks about eternal life is given to those who are his sheep that have been joined to him as their shepherd. And what he gives is not just some stuff, but he gives himself. That he is the son of God that abounds in life. John 1 talks about he's the life of life of all mankind. What he's saying here is if we are joined to him by faith, it is sure, it is sure that our destiny is not death, it is life. Because it cannot be otherwise. It's the God who is life, and if we've been joined to him, that life is ours. He is ours. It cannot be otherwise. Now that seems too good to be true. In fact, what Jesus says next seems outlandish. Look at it. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Can you believe this? Being joined to Jesus by faith. The life that is ours is one that transforms our relationship to death. For the Christian, the enemy of death has been conquered in Jesus and its ultimate power. So that now, for us, death is not a destination. It's not an end point. It's a thing to pass through. Before Jesus, or apart from Jesus, death is a room with one door. We enter it, but we never exit. But what happened when Jesus entered the quote-unquote room of death in that image is he kicked a hole in the wall on the other side. So that it's not a destination. For those of us who have found his grace, whose grace has been given to us through him, death is a door that we pass through. Not something to be welcomed, but 
Don't hear me wrong. That's not in order with what I just said. But in Christ, our relationship to Him has changed. This is what Jesus meant earlier. You may have noticed this. When they first told Him that Lazarus was sick, He said in verse 4, This sickness will not end in death. Now that wasn't Jesus being ignorant because Lazarus died. That wasn't Jesus wrongly predicting that Lazarus would get better. What Jesus is saying here is that this sickness will not end in death. It will not be the final place for his friend Lazarus. That's not where the road of Lazarus' life leads. That's not the end. When Jesus says this, he is not closing his eyes to what's going on and trying to wish it away. He's not telling his disciples uh, to, to yeah, hope it, it's going to be okay. What he's saying is, what you think is final, what you think is the enemy uh, against whom no one can stand, then frankly, the most sure things in the world are what death and taxes. What Jesus is saying is, what you think is the most sure thing, death that cannot be escaped, That end, the end is gone. That's what Jesus is saying. And as he raises Lazarus, it's almost like we get a foreshadowing of sense of where the whole story is going. We'll touch on that more in a second. So Martha receives this incredible promise. Look at verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And she runs and gets her sister. Now let me say something here about Martha. I don't think Martha had a clue about what was coming next. I think we see here in Martha uh, the fact that sometimes faith persists in the midst of uh, misunderstanding. Not being able to, you know, the pathway of faith isn't us being able to draw all the lines on a sudden become you know, mathematics to bonds. It's, it's not, the path of faith is not about being a good mathematician that understands the equation and can draw all the lines. Our faith is centered in on a person. And I think what Martha's saying here is, you said this, Jesus, and I know who you are, and I believe you, and I don't have a clue that this is going to work out. But I think we see here a picture in Martha is when the world has gotten dark around her, when things have gotten very zeroes in on Jesus. And I think that's the most sure thing for us as well. We're going to live in a world where there's going to be lots of confusing times in our lives. And I think the pathway of faith in the midst of uh, lacks of clarity, in the midst of darkness, is to zero in and focus in on Jesus, who He is. And we can believe what He said because we know who He is. So, Martha runs and she gets her sister. Look at Mary in verse 32. In the midst of her grief, she says the exact same thing to Jesus that her sister did. You've been here, my brother, but I would die. And see the answer that Jesus gives. He doesn't scold her. Let me note it again. He has a second opportunity here. He didn't scold Martha. He has a second opportunity here. And more people have heard this because notice it says that people follow me. And so this conversation between Mary and Jesus was overheard by more people than Martha and Jesus. Jesus has an opportunity. If he wants to tell her that you dare not say that to me because I'm the Son of God, he could. He doesn't scold her for a lack of faith. 
He doesn't tell her faith over fear. He sees her. He sees their friends weeping. And notice in verse 33, it says that he was, quote, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That word that's quoted, uh, or translated, uh, moved in spirit, can also be uh, anger. That in this moment, in seeing this grief, Jesus was uh, almost enraged. Not just mildly bothered, outraged and troubled. It's actually the word, it, the word comes from the word, the, the Greek word that's used to describe when a, when a horse uh, snorts. You ever been around a horse and make it mad? The horse will tell you real quick. <laughs> that's what the root of this word is. So Jesus is deeply troubled. What could have made him angry? What could have moved him and troubled him here? It, I think it was the sight of this grief, this pain. He's the creator of this world. And he is walking around watching his creation, made for the light, made to be a theater of God's glory, he's watching it marred by the fallout of sin, by death in his world. He's seeing the power of death at work emotionally in this family that he loves, and this group of people. And Jesus is furious at death, the power of death and the despair of grief. So he asked him in verse 34 to take him to Lazarus. That's remarkable to me. Because he asks them to take them to the very source of their pain and disappointment. He doesn't avoid it. They've gone out to see him. He could say, take me to the house where there are refreshments and people brought food and I'll go there and I'll sit with you. He says, no, take me to the grave. To the source of your pain and disappointment. And then comes verse 35, one of the most remarkable verses in all of scripture. Jesus Jesus wept. It's not tears of despair, but it is tears of grief. Even knowing what he was about to do. Even knowing that he is God in the flesh. And in just a few moments, he's going to say, Lazarus, come out. And he's going to watch all these people celebrate. In the midst of this grief, right in this moment, Jesus enters into their grief to grieve with them. He joins his grief with them. He joins his anger with theirs. The good news is that the grief of Jesus, hear this, the grief of Jesus, which he shows here, the anger of Jesus, aren't ineffectual. I look around all the time and I grieve and I grow angry. But I'm, so often I can't do anything with it. I grieve and the moment passes and then, you know, maybe I'm happy. I'm angry, angry in the moment passes. But the, the grief and anger of Jesus are not ineffectual. In entering our grief and anger into the fallout of death and the power of sin in this world, it's not just him becoming a cosmic shoulder for us to cry on. So when I say that Jesus is with us in our grief and our anger, it's not just that he understands it and can pat us on the back when we're, we're sorrowful. The profound thing of God entering into our grief is that Jesus joins us in it to do something about it. And what does he do? Let's look at this last section. What I'm calling the voice of life. This moment seems impossible. Lazarus has been dead for four days. There are superstitions at the time of Jesus that said that when someone died, three days their 
uh, spirit and hover above their body waiting to get back in. And if they couldn't get in after three days, then they'd go away. Now, that's not in the Bible. I'm not saying that at all. But that probably would have been in the background of some people's minds there. It did four days. It was over. It was over. Jesus is furious and freedom himself. He hears the words of the people gathered there. But not he who opened the eyes of the blind, but kept this man from dying. So then, in the middle of this, Jesus prays, and he prays loud enough to be overheard. And when Jesus is praying here, he's not, he's not just saying it loudly to perform. He's not trying to be admired for his prayer. Rather, in a sense, the people there, and us reading John today, when we hear the Son of God praying to the Father, we are invited to overhear and to be joined and enter into this intimacy with the Father. Now, there's another prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. We are invited to overhear into the intimacy of the Son with the Father. So we're not people who are eavesdropping on this. We are now people that have been included into this relationship. Look at the content of the prayer here in verse 41. Father, I thank you you've heard me. I thank you that you've heard me. Jesus is talking in past tense about something he's about to do. It's a sense of confidence rooted in who he knows his father is. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you'd always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you've seen me. Jesus has been heard. And in his confidence that he has been heard, he turns to this grave, this impenetrable grave, and he calls to his friend, and he calls him by name. And this voice calls him loud. Again, this felt like an end. As final as final can be, of course it did. He'd been dead for four days. But that was not to factor in the voice of Jesus who calls to life. In John, this is the crescendo of Jesus' power. We've seen him do a number of miracles, or what John calls signs. This is the biggest one. It's been building up to this. The Gospel of John is I just mentioned it has a number of what it calls signs. It doesn't call them miracles. It calls them signs. And the idea here is that Jesus' works are signs not just pointing to themselves. They're not, as I've said before, they're not magic tricks trying to impress us with what Jesus can do. They're signs that point to a greater reality. He is the king bringing God's kingdom. What does God's kingdom look like? This sign, with all the other signs, point beyond even the great event that happened here to something else. And here's what I mean. If this was all that Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the grave, that would be impressive. But it would really only be good news for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Everybody who was there would be impressed, but it's really only good news for that one person and that family. They get Lazarus back. Uh, a cool story that maybe we'd be jealous of. This sign serves as a point. For our hope isn't just that we will be brought back to life. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Lazarus died in man. Lazarus wasn't raised to some glorified state where he was not affected by sickness or death again. Lazarus died again. He's not here now. Every person that Jesus healed later got sick, presumably, and died at some point. 
All of those miracles were not the point. It wasn't just Jesus showing up to do a bunch of stuff to impress people. These were all signs pointing to a grander reality. And for us to stare at this bringing back Lazarus to life, it points us to a greater bringing him to life. Because our hope is not just that we would be brought back to life. Our hope is resurrection. Not just resuscitation. Resurrection. God not just bringing us back to life, but, but uh, bringing us to what the Bible calls glorification. Where we move beyond the marring of sin. Where we're brought into the completeness of what he has for us as human beings. And that's what Jesus holds out for us in our great hope. Not that we will be, uh, not only will our sicknesses not end in death, like he spoke about with Lazarus, but that our deaths won't end in death. That's our great hope. So the picture of what we can look forward to in resurrection is not Lazarus, it's Jesus. Jesus was slain at his cross, and when he rose from the grave, he rose victorious. He rose as one whose body was not given over to death and sin or the effects of sin and sickness anymore. He rose as one who had been brought forth from the grave in a new life. That is what we look forward to as well. That not only, as I said, are our sicknesses, Will our paths not end in death, but our deaths will end in death? That if things are not okay, then it is not okay. To quote Sandra McCracken's song, it's a great song. This is not okay, so this is not okay. Because I know that if this is not okay, then this is not okay. That's the assurance that we have. For God has assured us what? Fast forward to the end, Revelation 21. He is making all things new, and all will be well. He's making all things new. Now, the raising of Lazarus in the Gospel of John is the final straw for the religious leaders. In fact, if you keep reading, we're not going to get into this uh, passage as uh, in the next few weeks or anything, but there actually becomes a plan not only to arrest and have Jesus crucified as a threat, Actually, to kill Lazarus. There's a plan. <laughs> They're talking about assassinating him because Lazarus walking around is a big old testimony, a witness to the life and power of Jesus. What lays ahead for Jesus in John's suffering and pain? He's betrayed, he's abandoned, he faces a false arrest and the injustice of a false trial. He'll experience beating, mockery, and shame, pain, and death, grief upon grief. But through this, the greatest of injustices and tragedies, the glory of God will be revealed because the absolute depth of his love for us is demonstrated as he goes to the furthest depths of our human experience. Not just the sorrow around the grave of one man, but Jesus enters the absolute depths of human experience of sin against people, of injustice, to free us from our bondage of sin and violence, to renew us by his grace. And Scripture tells us that his suffering becomes our victory. His suffering, in his suffering, he took the very worst that our world had to offer, that he judged it in himself and defeated it. And our invitation is to join our sufferings to his, to see him there with us in our sufferings, and to know his tears and our tears, his pain and our pain, to know his loss 
and his grief in ours is not just that to know his resurrection from the dead and the dawning of a new creation that is guaranteed to us by him. He is making all things new, friends, and that includes me and that includes you. That is God's intent and purpose and will for you. He's making all things new. And with him joining his grief to ours, it means also this, that he joins his victory to us. And it's a victory and a promise that endures the deepest of our sorrow because it endured the deepest of his sorrow. And that's the good news of our passage this morning. That this isn't just a cool story of something that Jesus did once. This is our story too. That we who without Jesus would find ourselves helpless in the face of suffering and death. Or as the words of Ephesians 2 that we read in our confession of sin, that apart from Jesus we are dead in our transgressions and sins. That Jesus would be moved not because we danced well enough or made loud enough noise or, or lived well enough for him to come to us, but that in our spiritual death he saw us. And as he comes to us to bring us his grace, we are dead in the grave four days gone, our bodies <laughs> metaphorically stinking, and he calls us out and brings us to life. He awakens our hearts by his love. To let us know that our sin, no matter how great, is not the final word about us. But the final word about us is grace. Or better yet, it's Jesus. He has come to us to be one of us, to never be apart from us. That in the midst of our sorrows, we always, always, always have Father, I thank you that in this, uh, this, this account of this incredible thing, that we have such a picture of who Jesus is, what he does with his power, what he does with his authority. What motivates and propels him? God, thank you that it's love for us. So I pray, God, as we ponder these truths that we've talked about this morning, drive them in our hearts, make them loud in our ears, so that as we try to lie to ourselves, as the world tries to lie to us, that we come after these truths coming in. Make Jesus big in our hearts. I pray all this in name. We come down to the Lord's table, which is a uh, very small but significant emblem that Jesus established for his disciples. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus ate a meal with his friends. And he said that these very ordinary things of bread and wine are bread and bread juice. That these are the body and blood of Jesus. He was about to pour out his life. For their sake, for our sake. And he said, as often as you celebrate this meal together, remember. And it's not only something that stands here and we think about what Jesus has done. This is also, maybe mysteriously, <laughs> a means of Jesus giving us his grace. That as we partake here, we are spiritually feeding on the body and blood of Jesus. And something is happening as we swallow, as we hold, as we smell, we are internalizing the grace of Jesus. 
so that it does not remain just outside of us or something even that we just hear. It becomes something we touch, that we smell, that we taste. And Jesus confirms to us here in these ordinary things set apart for his extraordinary purposes that he is for all of who we are. So let's come to this table and let's speak by faith. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for me, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Take it. So let's pray now that God would use that which we've given to him um, and multiply it. Like he does this very ordinary thing. He sets it apart for his extraordinary purposes, his bread and his wine and grape juice. Let's pray that he does the same thing with that which we offer to him. Money, time, treasure, talents. That him adding his grace to it would abound into other people receiving his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've provided for us in so many ways. So I pray, God, as we, in an act of worship, give to you, not just money that's too small, but as we begin to be people who give you all that we have, that you would take it, Lord, you would multiply it by your grace, and you would crown it with more grace, that you would use our meager gifts, that your kingdom might grow, that more and more people might See the light of Jesus and hear the good news of your gospel. That more and more voices will be added to the choir and sing your praise. For your glory and for our good. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing in response. One of my very favorite songs, All Must Be Well. This song embodies our hope. As I said, we live in this world, we look around and we're invited to Jesus. If it's not okay, it's not the end. If it's not okay in our lives, it's not the end. Let's sing together all these people.
with His presence with us, with His, uh, his purposes for us, sure, in this benediction, as we walk out like this echo in your heart. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face to you.